Stu Does America. Follow us at twitter.com slash America. Lots of videos going up there on a daily basis. We appreciate you checking it out. If you're watching on YouTube, well, video goes there too. You may know that. Subscribe to the channel. Hit the bell for notifications. Do all the things. Joy Pullman is here to smack down a historical association's attempt to label American history as racist. Sound of Freedom continues to dominate at the box office. I've got the latest number for you. Honestly, they're, they're blowing even me away, and we've been in the middle of this for years. But we start by doing Barstool. Yes, Barstool Sports. You may know them. They uh, started as this little uh, newspaper that Dave Portnoy was hanging out, you know, handing out in Boston. And it grew into a social media phenomenon, a huge site. And, you know, it's a big deal in the sports world. And I just can't. I, what happened this week is absolutely remarkable, and we have to go through it. Um, but let me give you a little uh, 101 on Dave Portnoy. If, if you happen to maybe not follow him that closely, conservatives have a little bit of a mixed relationship, I would say, with, with Dave Portnoy. He kind of exploded onto the scene politically, maybe, with his rant on, what was it, May 13th, 2020, in the middle of, like, peak COVID. Everyone's home. We're in the two, maybe six weeks to stop the spread. We're in the middle of that period. And here's what he said. We're staying inside till there's a cure? When did that become the game? Who said we're getting the cure? That's not a guarantee, so we're just done as humans? Get the hell out of here, there's risk. We're Americans, you have to take risk. If people wanna go out, they can go out. If they wanna stay in, they stay in. We've done what you've said, you can't just midstream be like, just kidding, flatten the curve, flatten the curve, Uh uh-uh, cure. What? When did this happen? When did this happen? And it can't sustain. At least we have a chance if we go out with Corona, like Switzerland and those places that just let it roll. We have no chance if you don't let people go outside. This country is going to be donezo. No one's going to have jobs. No one's going to have businesses. It's going to be done. We're, it's over. Let me roll the dice and play with Corona, or at least give me the choice. That's all we want. Now, you may have heard that from places like, you know, The Blaze, but like it's hard to overstate how, you know, viral that video went and what a big deal it was at the time. I mean, it was in the middle of everyone, including President Trump, telling us we need to stay inside. And, you know, Dave Portnoy was one of the first people outside of the conservative ecosphere to really talk about what the hell is going on here? Like, when does this happen? When do we get out of our houses again? So he was widely embraced by conservatives at that period. Now, when Roe versus Wade got overturned, it wasn't quite as pretty on the conservative side. We are literally going backwards in time. It it makes no sense how anybody thinks it's their right to tell a woman what to do with her body. I just don't get it. To take away the ability to make informed decisions on how they want to live their lives is bananas. I know people will be like, well, no, it's a constitutional issue. They're just giving it to the states. Well, like what, 20 states are saying they're going to overturn it right away? And what if you're poor in that state and you can't go to another state and things like that? It's just nuts to me. Maybe not everything is exactly to a T in the Constitution. Like a million years from now, you're gonna use a document written in the, it's just nuts. In what world? The world evolves, people evolve, technology evolves. You gotta evolve. You can't stick with this document and look at that and be like, that's the end all be all. It's literally crazy pills. (laughs) So, yeah, all over the board politically when it comes to uh, relating to conservatives. And, and look, it's not his job. He doesn't, it doesn't, it's not really important. But it is interesting to see. And I will say I would be remiss if I did not mention the fight between uh, Alex Stein and, uh, and, and Barstool and Dave Portnoy, which, you know, kind of crescendo with, uh, with Alex Stein showing up at the Barstool offices. 
Hey, I'm looking for Dave Portnoy. Come on, Dontarius. Dontarius. It's prime time. Come on, Dontarius. I brought my wife boyfriend in here. Come on, guys. Where's Dave? Where's Dave? Where's Dave? Where's Dave? I'm with my wife's boyfriend. Come on. I'm with my wife's boyfriend. I will say Alex's uh, wife's boyfriend really needs to find better fitting sweatpants. That's just something that's that's just something I've noticed. Uh, you can take that advice if you want, Don Terrius. Um, but what happened this week is really remarkable, totally outside of politics, just like the greatest business deal of all time uh, happened this week. And it's incredible to see I, this is what you need in your life. It's what I need in my life. Why can't I find a deal like this? Let me bring you through it. Now, take you back to the beginning. Again, Dave Portnoy starts this business handing out newspapers in Boston, right? Grows it into this big website, big social media following. It's growing and growing and growing and eventually gets a big investment from the churning group. Uh, they say about 10 to $15 million was the estimate at the time in a Periscope live stream, which tells you how fast things change. Do you remember Periscope? Uh, Dave Portnoy told viewers that he sold 51% of his stake in Barstool, and the deal was, was less than 20 million, about 10 to 15 million. Portnoy says his site is very profitable, but the valuation was based on revenue, not profit, which effed them up a little near, uh, during the negotiations. He said he never would have expected that anyone would ever invest in his company, and he knows he left money on the table during the exit, but he thinks joining Chernin is worth it. And it did, I mean, it did help the site expand quite a bit. And it was right around this time that they hired a new CEO, Erica Nardini. Now, at this point, it's 2016-ish. They have 12 employees at Barstool. It's still a very small company, you know, but they hire Erica Nardini. And this is a really key moment in all of their lives because this takes the company from, you know, a, a really a lot of really popular content and a big following into a really serious company, Erica Nardini, a serious CEO. So you go down the road a little bit here and the site expands. They have their ups. They have their downs. They go through COVID. They do really well during COVID, uh, churning out uh, content uh, like many others did not. And eventually they get to a point where because they talk about gambling a lot, and, and that's a big part of their uh, content at Barstool, they wind up getting purchased by Penn National Gaming. Penn paid $551 million to buy Barstool. Remember, Dave Portnoy still owns 49% or, or thereabouts. Um, and this is a two-part deal that began in early 20 and concluded this past February. Now, if it was just that, it would be a really nice, big American success story, right? You start out, you're, on, you're, in, a, you're in train stations handing out something you printed yourself, and years later, you've sold half the company at between 10 and $15 million, and then you're selling the other half of the company for $550 million. Now, what they did with that was to try to turn it into barstool uh, sports books, as sports gaming was becoming legal. It made a lot of sense to partner with someone with a big audience when it came to gaming. And this kind of exploded and, and they really grew very, very quickly. Now, fast forward to this week. Dave's already got a lot of money. He's got hundreds of millions of dollars because of this, right? It's a real success story. 
And if it stopped there, as I said, it would be a great success story. But apparently that wasn't enough success for Barstool. <laughs> this is incredible. Here is Dave Portnoy talking about the new development that happened just this week. Where to start? Penn Entertainment and Barstool Sports have gone our separate ways. As of this moment, while you were watching this video, I have purchased back Barstool Sports from Penn. So that is right. For the first time in a decade, I own 100% of Barstool Sports. Not since the churning deal have I been in total control of everything. Okay. So he bought it back. Now, is, there's an interesting part of this, which kind of goes with something that we talk about all the time as it relates to cancel culture and government regulation. Part of the reason why this relationship didn't work out all that well was because the government uh, was cracking down on licenses and, of course, the content coming from Barstool, not always the most PC stuff, and that became a problem. And we talk about this all the time in industry after industry after industry. Here's an example of it hitting Barstool Sports. We underestimated just how tough it is for myself and Barstool to operate in a regulated world where gambling regulators, the New York Times, Business Insider hit pieces with the stock price. Every time we did something, it was one step forward, two steps back. We got denied licenses because of me, you name it. So the regulated industry, probably not the best place for Barstool Sports and the type of content we make. Okay. So what does that sound like? It sounds like, okay, you had a uh, kind of a, a marriage that was a little bit odd at the, at the time, uh, but seemed to make a lot of sense. They get into the middle of that marriage and they realize, ah, we don't really want to live with each other, um, mainly because there's all sorts of problems related to what Barstool Sports does every day, what they're known for, the reason you want to partner with them, right? Like they have all this content that people really love, but it can be controversial. And of course, the government gets in the way, as they always do with everything. Okay. So... There's one question left here, right? Dave Portnoy sells half of his co company for 10 or $15 million, half, the other half of his company for $551 million. It's all been sold now. And now he's saying he has it all back, 100% of it in his control for the first time in a decade. So the question that remains here is, what did he pay for it, right? Like he got hundreds of millions of dollars when, the, you know, he got half of that $551 million approximately when it was sold. Uh, to uh, to Penn Gaming. So how much of that did he have to give back to Penn Gaming to get full control of his company again? The answer? One dollar. One freaking dollar. Yes, Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy bought his site back for one dollar after selling it for $551 million dollars. I kid you not, there's no, like, asterisk around this. Well, there's a little bit of one. We'll get into that in a second. But generally speaking, that's just what happened. He sold it for $551 million. He worked there the whole time. And by the way, when he was working there, I assume he was also getting paid, you know, some sort of salary probably too, probably a very large one. But he bought it back for $1, just $1. Now, there is the one little asterisk here, which is, now that it's back in Dave Portnoy's control, if he sells it, half of the money they sell it for would go back to Penn Gaming, the company he just bought it from. But if he doesn't sell it, he never has to give them anything else. So $1, he can run this thing for as long as he wants. And guess what he's saying he's going to do? 
By the way, I am never going to sell Barcel Sports, ever. I'll hold it till I die, and when I die, I'll give it to Dan or Kevin, who's ever left standing. If their kids are still alive, they'll get whatever. We will pass it down. This is now going to be a place for content, 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 content. Every time I think I'm out, they pull me back in. That's right. I'm not going anywhere. Barstool Sports, the Pirate Sip, the Cannons, they will plunder from now for the next hundred years. So welcome back. Back in control. <laughs> so, so he sold his company for $551 million. He bought it back for a dollar, and all he has to do is not sell it, which he says he's never going to do. Now, why, you'd ask, why would Penn Gaming do this? Why would they go through with this deal? Well... Apparently, it, they weren't getting the you know where they wanted to go with the uh, the licenses and, and such that he discussed earlier, and Penn decided they wanted to partner instead with ESPN, which certainly makes a lot of sense. They struck a two billion dollar sports betting deal with Penn Entertainment and ESPN, one point five billion dollars in cash over ten years. So, basically, the price to buy out Dave Portnoy and Barstool was hey. We'll just give it back to you for a buck. And now he has it till the end of time. Has there ever been a deal like this? Has there ever been a situation where you go through a process like this? The company, you know, Barstool itself is still really healthy. They're still doing really well. They still have big personalities. They're doing all their stuff. They're still generating tons and tons of money. And he's got it for a dollar. This is the, I mean, this is the greatest, this is a great American story. Uh, so congratulations to the people over at Barstool. And look, Dave is a really talented uh, entertainer and, and does really, really well. But it, not shown here uh, often enough is Erica Nardini, the CEO, who could be the greatest hire of all time. I mean, this could be the, the most amazing. I mean, how does this happen? Why doesn't it happen to me? I want things like this. Why don't they happen to me? I don't want to put in the effort, of course, to get them. That's, a, that's an important uh, caveat here. But it's important to understand that it should be happening to me and not others. That's something you know. Look, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I'm just fascinated by this deal. I'm fascinated about how this came together. And I just wish our country, I, I, I just wish Bidenomics worked this well. So no matter what you have going on this summer, Box of Awesome has you covered from camping gear essentials, cookout must-haves, and drink great game upgrades. Box of Awesome has collections for every part of your life. So I was talking about uh, cookout essentials. I got this puppy right here. Now this just came in. One, you know, I like to bring every once in a while something in from a Box of Awesome that comes in. This came in earlier in the summer. And, you know, like you're out there, if you're a grill guy, you're out there with your grill, you're thinking to yourself, you got to have the cutting board out there, cut up the veggies, cut up whatever you're doing there. This one, really nice cutting board, little mini one, little travel one. If you're camping, it's great as well. And comes right here with a knife included. That means not only can you cut up your veggies and everything else right uh, at, the, uh, at the grill, it's a really good knife, by the way, you can also stab people. Uh, that's not uh, necessarily recommended by Box of Awesome, but if you are attacked, 
you've got a way to get out of that situation. Box of Awesome is great. You just go there, you take a little quiz, it picks the right Box of Awesome for you. They have a ton of them, new boxes every month across a ton of different categories. And each, each box is valued at 70 bucks. You only pay about a fraction of that price, and usually they're worth a lot more than 70 bucks. Uh, it's free to sign up. You can skip a month, you can cancel anytime. Get 20% off your first monthly box when you sign up at boxofawesome.com and enter the code STU at checkout. It's boxofawesome.com, code is STU, get 20% off. Why wouldn't you want to save 20%? Boxofawesome.com, the code is STU. I want to bring in Joy Pullman to the program. She is the executive editor of The Federalist and the author of the new piece, Historical Association Can't Keep Facts Straight, an attacking curriculum that celebrates American patriotism. I'll tweet a link out. Be sure to check this out. Uh, Joy, thanks so much for coming on the program. Well, thanks for having me again, Stu. Great to see you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I never knew patriotism was so controversial. We've learned that apparently over the past couple of years. This story in particular has to do with Hillsdale College and a curriculum that they put together, I think for K to 12 schools, uh, called mm -hmm. the 1776 curriculum. And the reaction to this has been absolutely incredible. Can you kind of walk us through the story? Yeah, I mean, hysterical, I think, is not, uh, is absolutely a apropos word for describing the reaction to it. Um, and so I was writing about a article in NBC News that really essentially called the cur cur curriculum straight up racist. You know, the usual smear used against anything that isn't far left nowadays. I was trotted out against this. And so what I found is when in talking to, so the, I guess the NBC article uses, it kind of launders its extreme politics and its claims of racism through this historical association called the American Historical Association. But what I found that was the claims um, of that American Historical Association and therefore NBC News, they couldn't even substantiate when I asked them about it. Yeah, so they, they, they were making claims, you know, the typical thing of saying like, you know, oh, well, they're talking, they're praising the KKK or whatever. They're, I mean, they're really wild claims about this curriculum. And again, Hillsdale, like, yeah, it's a conservative leaning school, but it's not like, you know, this isn't some like, you know, you know, random Twitter user here. This is a, this is a real uh, establishment that has uh, real credentials. Um, and they tried to basically make it seem like racism was baked into this entire thing. But like reading your article, it seems like they did, they confuse this curriculum with something completely separate. Yeah, there were a number of really kind of shocking errors from an, an organization that is literally supposed to be an academic organization. You know, if you're a historian, you're supposed to be really, really precise about facts, about footnoting, about getting all of the very small details right. That should be just basic, you know, for an organization like that. Um, and, and the president of that association, whom, whom I emailed with, he is a professional historian himself. He's got a PhD from Berkeley University, a number of publications, you know, so it's not like he's a stranger to this field. You, I mean, it looks like he has a pretty long resume on the fact. But, you know, for one of the major things that they kept doing, for example, they made claims about Hillsdale's curriculum that they actually only were applying to a completely different document. We weren't even talking about the same document. You know, so it was a, um, the American Historical Association had produced information claiming that a, the 1770s, 
56 report that the Trump administration had put together a number of years, uh, sometime before the curriculum came out, um, you know, it, it, they claimed that was racist. And so then it kind of just imported all of these claims about that report into the curriculum. But as far as I can tell, the American Historical Association doesn't appear to have actually read that curriculum. But then they went to NBC News and, you know, allowed themselves to be quoted in NBC News, you know, really large network, um, you know, or, or a, a really large media network, um, you know, with, with claims about a completely different document, you know, and so that's, I mean, if you just think about, we're not even, they weren't even talking about the same thing, right? So they were smearing it as racist, but all of their smears connected to a completely different document. So it's just kind of smeared by association. Um, and again, if, if you're representing yourself as this um, history, academic, you know, really qualified credential organization, I really think they ought to be able to get basic facts like that right before they go around, you know, it really damages their credibility for them to be looking, doing that in the press. I mean, it really is embarrassing. I, the, the bottom <laughs> line is it's embarrassing for NBC. It's embarrassing for this historical association. Uh, and, and I, you know, can you find something in here? Is there anything worth criticizing? I, I, I mean, I mentioned that I don't know when uh, patriotism became so controversial. I mean, is there anything in here that goes across some line? Is there is there really uh, tough, controversial, political type stuff in this curriculum or is it a basic American history? Well, I mean, I, I'm not a historian myself, right? So I don't have necessarily the best amount of information to be able to judge that based on, you know, my historical knowledge. But I actually would invite every single American who is interested to go ahead and read it, right? And I think anyone who is fair-minded would come away from it and say, this seems perfectly reasonable, right? And in fact, we know, for, for example, that America, in, in American schools, civic and historical knowledge is at a completely all-time low. You know, the latest NAEP scores show, I think, 18 percent proficiency for American um, uh, eighth graders in American history. You know, that's I mean, how can you have an edge? We have to have an educated citizenry in order to conduct our model of self-government. How can people, you know, even think through major issues and participate wisely in our voting processes if they don't know anything about all of the major things that, uh, you know, created the system that we have now, all of the major principles that went into developing our country and our constitutional system of government, if Americans are completely ignorant, they're going to make very, very bad decisions. So there's a direct correlation between the ignorance of the people and the low quality of its government. And I think pretty much everyone can agree. If you look around you and wonder what in the heck the voters are thinking a lot of the time, I think a very large portion of that is clearly due to the fact that our education quality is so low. Mm. Uh, enjoy. This is just another example of, of a tactic, right? This is something the left is doing all over the country. Uh, maybe most, uh, most uh, popular uh, in, in Florida, these attacks, where they come up with uh, accusations of racism, claim things like book burning. When you look into the facts of these, or book banning, excuse me, you look into the facts of these things, of course, they're, they're never true. Th these things aren't uh, accurate at all. When people are polled, on these questions, they almost always side with the conservatives. They like, uh, you know, most people like America. They like the country they live in. They read certain things that the left calls racist and they don't see them as racist at all. Is this just yet another example of the same sort of phenomenon? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think what it's, I mean, the one of the things that really bothers me about it is that as an American, you know, and a Christian, I, you know, I, it really is actually deeply offensive to be called a racist because I actually believe that that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like calling someone an adulterer. You know, it's, it's a really, really bad thing. I would say in American political life, it's the possibly the worst thing you could be called, right? So it's a very serious charge and a claim. And what we are, we find time and time again is that these legitimately serious charges are made on not only zero evidence whatsoever, but actually made up evidence, falsified evidence. Just They're, they're just claims literally to de- delegitimize the political opponents of the left. And what that really does is makes it impossible for us to have a civil society, right? Because if half of the country doesn't get to have its voice represented and heard, how can the decisions that we make as a people be seen to be done by our consent, right? How can we consent to things that we're not even allowed to talk about fairly and freely and openly and present evidence about. And so this is absolutely a part of where the fact that, you know, the political left in this country doesn't believe that we need this, um, our, our culture of free speech, our culture of open debate, our culture of people being able to bring in their ideas. And instead, what is used instead of really treating racism as a serious thing that ought to be judged based on real evidence, instead it is just used as a label to slap people out of public life. And on many, many counts, that's that's deeply offensive. It degrades the actual problem of racism and forbids people from actually talking about it when it does come up. And what it also does is bans perfectly normal, non-racist, legitimate Americans and their ideas from being heard in public debate and in in, in a constitutional self-governing republic where people have the constitutional right to free speech, that is reprehensible. Mm, yeah, enjoy. I'm glad you brought it up because the, the Bible is very explicit about uh, not hating people and loving people no matter what their color of their skin. It's pretty a fundamental principle. Um, let me go to the Florida thing a little bit more here because I think it shows, and I think the Hillsdale situation is another example of this, a very strange thing that's happened in politics where you know Kamala Harris goes down to Florida and she makes this big speech and she talks about how well, what Ron DeSantis is doing is basically saying that, you know, slavery was beneficial to slaves. And and what I what I found, I could not stop myself from thinking, watching her say this over and over and over again, is that there's no way she actually believes it. Like she knows what she's saying is entirely untrue. And the line she is drawing for a public speech is not what is accurate, but what might be plausible to her base. Maybe her base will believe Ron DeSantis is a slave owner, basically, at this point, and and wants to (laughs) tell everybody that, hey, slavery was wonderful. The way he's presented in the media, they might just believe that. So instead of actually going ahead and trying to find the truth and being honest with people, they're saying things they know to be untrue, whether it's to knock a couple points off of Ron DeSantis or raise money for their cause from their base. I mean, it's so cynical, and it's a real problem problem right now. Right. And I mean, I I can't speak for Kamala Harris because she's really hard for me to figure out. I mean, people who have seen, for example, her complete babble speaking in the public sphere makes it really seem like she is a diversity hire. Right. So I don't really know if she she may believe all of these false lies. But the people writing her speeches, to your point, I really don't think that they can. Right. Again, they found it very, very effective to instead of engage with their fellow Americans and try to persuade them and understand where they are. I mean, these are just basic 
habits that are required for a democracy, for a republic to function, right? You have to be able to converse with people that you disagree with and somehow figure out how to live together with them. Otherwise, you don't have a country, right? You just have a tyranny. <laughs> so what we're really you know, uncovering here is that the left is using these smear tactics again, to perpetuate a tyrannical source of culture, right? It is a tyrannical sort of culture when half of the country's ideas are repressed or not ever or are dismissed with these false claims of really reprehensible with reprehensible labels. Um, you know, and, and they're not their voices are not allowed to be heard. They are ruled without their voices being heard and without their consent. And that really creates a very dark sort of system. And again, you can call it tyranny, you can call it totalitarianism, you know, whatever you want to call it, it is not free and fair and open open, honest government. And that's really what at the very highest places of our political power, that's what our, so many of our political leaders support. And it creates so many other problems as well. Uh, last one for you here, Joy, just your, your political gut on this. Does this stuff work? Like, I mean, are voters fooled by this stuff? Does this, does this just move dollars from hardcore leftists into campaigns? Or is this something that really can motivate voters to, to go after a, a Republican candidate and, and, and abandon them? Well, I think it actually probably has both of the fact it's very divisive tactic, right? So making unfounded accusations, whether it's of racism or of rape or whatever else is often trotted out against people on the right without any basis, without any facts to support them. That's a very, it's a wicked thing to do, right? It's divisive. You know, if when you and I are smeared, it makes us angry, right? If, especially when we're innocent, because we understand, wow, they're just completely treating me unfair. They're destroying my reputation for power. You know, so, so I think, you know, on some some of the some people recognize that that's happening and that makes them very angry and very bitter. Right. Which is why it shouldn't be done. It's, it's an unethical, evil tactic. And I think on some people who already maybe agree with their predilections being presented, they're predisposed towards thinking ill of their political opposites. You know, they do believe that. And it does solidify, you know, their support. I mean, Democrats look like they've been using your know, race as a wedge issue ever since it was a huge winning issue for Obama in, in 2008. You know, they recognize that being divisive with Americans and essentially destroying our country using white guilt and racial animosity, that's good for their political model. So even though it's bad for the entire country and it's based on piles of falsehoods, that a lot of the information, for example, in the 1776 curriculum, you know, helps you understand how complex they are and how much of the narrative, you know, is way deeper and richer and more complicated than, you know, white people bad, black people oppressed, right? There's a lot more going on there. And if you learn history, you would understand that. But again, you know, the, the people running the, uh, the left in this country have gotten completely out of control where America's destruction benefits them as a party. So the incentives for them to continue that still remain in place. Mm, yeah, it certainly doesn't seem like the actions of a party that's trying to heal our racial wounds uh, <laughs> at all. Uh, Joy Pullman, great stuff. Executive editor of The Federalist. Be sure to check out her new piece, Historical Association Can't Keep Facts Straight in Attacking Curriculum That Celebrates American Patriotism. Uh, I'll make sure to tweet it out as well. Well, Joyce, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Stu. Good to see you. Let me tell you about Grip6 and the, the great stuff that they make. You know, we talk about these companies all the time, these woke companies, these companies that are, you know, ruining uh, 
good old normie capitalism, if you will. Grip6 is going the other way. They, they're a company in the United States. They sell all over the world, um, but they source almost everything they make right here in America. You can get belts from other places that are you know, made in you know, another country, Vietnam, China, wherever. Uh, or you can get the great belts from Grip6. These are different belts, too. You're going to really like these. They're high, high quality. Also, they've got great wallets. They have awesome socks as well. They have a bunch of great products. Just go there and check it out. Grip6.com slash stew. Grip6.com slash stew. If you use the code stew, you will save 15% right now. Grip6.com slash stew. Get 15% off today at Grip6.com slash stew. Uh, you can get 15% off when you use the code stew. Emergency! Emergency! There's a border emergency. Well, not really the border emergency. It's an emergency in New York City. New York City Mayor Eric Adams has now asked the White House to declare a state of emergency over asylum seekers. Honestly, could this story get any better? I mean, it really is incredible that this is going on. Um, this comes on the heels of Massachusetts Governor uh, Maura Healey saying basically the same thing yesterday, and or maybe it was two days ago, asking for a state of emergency or declaring one as well. And this is fascinating, but I think, I could be wrong on this, but I think fundamentally people have this, like, they don't have this exactly down. I think what most people think of when they see this going on is that, oh, well, Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in, in Florida and other red states are sending their migrants up to these cities and they're overwhelming these cities and they're all sleeping outside on the sidewalk and that's why they need a state of emergency. And there is some of that happening. I mean, there still is some of that going on, but it's important to note, and, and you know this if you watch this show, I don't think a lot of other people, a lot of our other audiences know this, but we actually talked about the policies that were going into place when this border conversion happened uh, with, Joe, with Biden and the Biden administration. And they changed all these rules. You remember the, what was it, Title 42 was running out and, and they had to uh, figure out what they were going to do on the border. And there was this idea that there was going to be a huge rush to the border when this thing was lifted. And honestly, a lot of people, including myself for a while, believed that this was going to happen. But when you really looked at the details of what they were doing, they changed the rules enough to avoid the border crash by incentivizing something very specific. They incentivized people who wanted to come into the country illegally to skip the border entirely and fly directly into the interior. They, they basically said, well, we don't wanna have a jam up at the border. So what we want you to do is fly people into this, these cities at these airports, we'll process you there, it'll be all spread out across the country instead of in one place, we won't get the bad headlines, and you can come in that way. Well, obviously they listened to this, they learned it, and they've been flying in by the thousands across the country, and it's basically approved by our government right now. Come on in, fly directly into one of these airports, we'll process you, we'll release you, and you'll be in the country wherever you wanna be. Now this is, of course, a much better gig for uh, a lot of these illegal immigrants because many of them don't wanna come to a small border town on the Texas border that is already overrun when it comes to resources, they'd rather go to New York City where, or, you know, big cities where they have these big programs, a right to shelter law. Well, this is a lot of what's going on right now, though they are still shipping migrants up there as well. Um, one of the things that Adams has been complaining about is this right to shelter law. Basically, what this means is you have to find shelter for people. If they want it, you have to give it to them. Now, this was always crazy. It was always crazy because it was always forgotten when we would talk about the homelessness problem, because what this meant was the homelessness problem in New York is caused by people who do not want to come 
inside. They are choosing to stay outside. There is a law in place that they must get shelter if they want it. So the only reason they would not be able to get shelter is that they either didn't want it or they would rather do drugs instead of coming inside. So that's a lot of what was going on. Now this policy is, is, is biting them, even though Eric Adams came out initially and said, hey, this is a sanctuary city. It's going to remain a sanctuary city till the end of time. I love my illegal immigrants. Well, now he's got them, and now he wants a state of emergency. Same thing going on in, uh, in Massachusetts. This is largely another, yet another, Biden policy failure. Now, let's go to uh, another one here. Now, one of the things that's interesting is we have all these journalists. They all get paid all this money. They're supposed to be trying to find out the truth. And we do not have Joe Biden on record on anything going on with the Hunter Biden investigation, including the most recent massive deal with Devin Archer, where he talked about Joe Biden being on the phone 20 separate times on speakerphone in business meetings where they, you know, the left is trying to say, well, I just talked about the weather. He even attended some of these dinners, by the way. He wasn't just on the phone for them. It's hard to imagine. Can you imagine Joe Biden sitting down for an hour long dinner and at no point business comes up at all with all of Hunter Biden's business partners? I mean, that's have you ever met a human being before You're trying to get us to believe that? It's, it's just insane. Well, Peter Ducey finally did get to ask him about this. He did about 90 minutes ago give us first of its kind reaction uh, when he waved me over at the end of an event. There's this testimony now where one of your son's former business associates is claiming that you we're on speakerphone a lot with them, talking business. Is that what? I've never talked business in anyone. And I, I know you'd have a lousy question. Well, what do you, it's, why is that a lousy question? Because it's not true. No surprise, I've heard from a White House official who tells us that in their reading of that exchange, the question is wrong and his answer is right because they insist President Biden never did talk about business on those calls, which is what he said in response to my question. So didn't really seem like you wanted to talk about that today. And I give Peter Ducey a lot of credit for going up and actually getting some sort of exchange on this topic. He did sort of give him an out, though, by saying, hey, did you talk to business? That's been their line, right? So they just reinforce their same line. One of the most important things you can do when you get a moment like that to ask questions, and Peter Ducey has done this many, many times. He knows this better than I do, but it's to try to advance uh, the argument, right? Try to get him into a new position, try to further the truth. And really what it did was get him an opportunity, Biden, to restate this sort of BS public line that he never made any uh, comments about business. Uh, nobody believes that. I mean, literally no one believes that, but they're going to keep going with it until uh, until they get called out on it. And we need to advance this uh, investigation farther and we need to get them on record. For example, uh, you know, about uh, about Hunter Biden and the uh, the Devin Archer accusations, um, you know, at some point we need to get Joe Biden on record saying, hey, my son, I know I said I, he didn't do this in the past, but we can say now that it's true. He was using my name for business interest. I didn't know about it. I promise you. I swear. I swear. I swear. I swear. But I mean, I, I have to acknowledge that I was wrong. I didn't know he was doing this. And it's really disappointing. And I'm very disappointed in him or something. Right. Something. Make him go farther so we can disprove the next series of lies. Um, we also have a you know, I will say this about uh, the Joe Biden uh, exchange there. At least he knew who Peter Ducey was like he seemed to recognize Peter Ducey and yell at him for having a bad question, which 
indicates he was aware enough to understand a, a human being standing in front of him was a person he recognized and had some feelings toward, which is honestly more mental capacity than I thought he had at this point. And to be fair to me, I had just watched this exchange. Is it the responsibility of the U.S. to protect migrants who might be fleeing extreme weather in their countries? Look, I think the, the United States should do everything it can to help people who are in desperate need have no other means of help. And we've always done that. It is not our, it, it is just who we are. We're the United States of America. And the idea to begrudge the ability to, for example, one of the things we're doing is we're providing for changing the environment, the, the, the physical structures in the countries which they come from. So they don't have, so they have better lighting. They have more secure, uh, for example, you have all so many lead pipes all across America and throughout the country. You have 440,000 schools you turn on the water fountain and you may have lead in the water. And, and so, and thousands of people, we're replacing every single lead pipe in America. What uh, on earth does that have to do with the question? I don't, I don't have any idea. And also, why is that our responsibility? I mean, look, helping people is great. You want to give to charity to help people in other countries? Wonderful. Um, you don't come here because the weather's bad. Uh, that's not a thing. You don't get to come here because the weather's bad. You come here, uh, you know, legally. You don't just come here illegally because the weather's bad. And, and, you know, whose responsibility is it to fix the lead pipes in their country? It's their responsibility. And I don't know what has anything to do, I don't know what has anything to do with us fitting, fix, fixing lead pipes in America when you're talking about people in other countries. None of this makes any sense. He's completely incoherent as usual. Ah, that dark spot on your face, is it bothering you? How about liver spots on your hands, uh, maybe on your neck and chest? You can watch them disappear now, of course, safely and quickly in just three minutes with GenuCell. Introducing the GenuCell Dark Spot Corrector three-step, three-minute dark spot luxury system. It does exactly what it sounds like by using their Crystal's world-famous microdermabrasion before the dark spot corrector and then finishing with a touch of the collagen-building GenuCell XV or 15. I, don't, I actually don't know if it's XV or 15, but it's one of the two. Look for the X and the V, not next to each other. Uh, you'll see dark spots disappear before your very eyes instantly, smoothly, and luxuriously. And look, you don't have to believe me on this stuff. Uh, you, you're going to get an incredible experience and 100% of your money back if you are not satisfied. No questions asked. They have free shipping, free returns. They make this so easy for people. GenuCell.com slash stew. GenuCell.com slash stew. Order the new dark spot treatment today and say goodbye to the pesky spots tomorrow. It's GenuCell.com slash stew. And there's more. They have three products included in the GenuCell most popular package for August. Uh, so you got some more time to get a hold of this one. Um, you get the GenuCell bags and puffiness serum. It's also included, all for 70% off retail. Experience the luxury and effectiveness of GenuCell. Order now. Watch the dark spots disappear in just three minutes. 70% off while supplies last at GenuCell.com slash stew. GenuCell.com slash stew. It's G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash stew. The movie Sound of Freedom continues to do amazingly well. And I got to tell you, look, we've been talking to Tim Ballard for years and years and years and years and years. He's the head of Operation Underground Railroad. He's the guy who the movie is based on. And we've been talking about this guy forever. In fact, like 
I mean, I knew, you know, of this story. I knew this movie was in production. I, you know, I, and even I'm completely blown away about how well, of how well this is done. Uh, Tim just said uh, today to the Daily Mail, told the story. Uh, he had six children of his own to feed, very little savings in the bank. After a decade as a Fed, I took the leap of faith at the urging of my wife and decided to privately raise money to fund these rescue missions. Glenn Beck, against the advice of his lawyers, which is always how he does everything, um, stepped in to raise $1 million and Operation Underground Railroad was born. I mean, Glenn is like, you know, outside of Tim himself, the most important person to this organization in this story. And I'm just amazed at how far this has gone. Look at where this movie is now. This is the chart from this year. Sound of Freedom, $166 million, ahead of the latest Transformers sequel, ahead of the latest Rocky sequel, ahead of the latest Mission Impossible sequel, ahead of the latest Pixar movie, and ahead of the latest Fast and Furious sequel. I mean, this is blowing my mind. Congratulations to Tim Ballard and everybody involved in the movie. And thank God uh, this is happening and that their work is going to continue for a very long time. Well, uh, get scared. COVID-19 is heating up all around this summer. The question, should we be be wearing masks again, has been asked. And... uh, um, Uh, First of all, no, uh, we should not. They weren't working last time. Why would we do it this time? But then I did realize that the author of this particular story is someone named Rong Gon Lin II, um, which uh, technically his name is actually wrong. His name is literally wrong. So, I mean, I I don't know. I mean, could could you hire a journalist named wrong? I mean, I guess he fits in very, very well.